Welcome to the first episode of the Grand Scheme of Things. My name is Bill McKim, and I'll be your guide. In this series of podcasts, I want you to come on a journey with me. We'll travel from the outer limits of the cosmos to the very tiniest particle possible, from the beginning of time to the present and perhaps a bit beyond. And in our way, we will stop and see how lifeless molecules become living things, and how the billions of nerve cells in your brain become conscious. And what's more, we'll try to figure out how all these things fit together. In other words, we'll try to understand the grand scheme of things, and the place you and I have in it. That sounds a little ambitious, but let's give it a try, and see how we make out. I know there's no shortage of people who claim to understand the universe, and are able to explain our place in it. These include all the great religions of the world and their sacred books and manuscripts, the collected wisdom and insight of ancient peoples, and many philosophers and other clever and learned people. The insights to be gained from all these sources must not be dismissed or overlooked, but they will not be in our travels. We will have only one source to guide us, that is, science. Clearly, before we can get started on our grand adventure, we need to set up some ground rules and come to a common understanding of the meaning of a few things. If science is to be our guide, let's start with the nature of science. Science is understood in many different ways by many different people. Most think science is a collection of facts. Like when you go to school and study biology, you learn the names and many animals and plants, and usually in Latin. Uh, You learn about their behavior and how their bodies work. You take a course in physics and you learn about the equations that describe work and heat and motion. And in chemistry you learn formulas for different chemicals and why and how they interact with each other. But these facts are not science. Science is a process, a method, not a bunch of facts. Science is a method that was used to to determine the facts that you learn in science courses. A great many people have written a great deal about the scientific method, what it is and how it works, and uh, made it sound complicated, but I don't want to make things more complicated than necessary. I've found that perhaps the best description of science and the scientific method was provided by an Austrian philosopher named Karl Popper. Here's his story. trained in Austria in the early 20th century. As a student, he became interested in several theories which were widely discussed by a group of students at the University of Vienna, where he, where he studied. The theories were Karl Marx's theory of history, Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis, Alfred Adler's individual psychology, and Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, which had only just been published a few years earlier. During the summer of 1919, Popper became increasingly dissatisfied with the first three of these theories, Marx, Freud, and Adler, and became skeptical of their claims to scientific status. He wondered what made them so different from Einstein's theory of relativity. This was odd, because at the time, few people actually understood Einstein's theory, and because it was so revolutionary, many who did understand the it thought that it was preposterous. On the other hand, Adler, Freud, and Marx uh, were much easier to understand. 
and they were more relevant to people's experience. What's more, they appeared to have great explanatory power and provided new insights. What bothered Popper was that they seemed to be able to explain just about everything, everywhere you looked. He liked them to predictions you might hear from an astrologer, such as, you will soon uh, have some bad luck, or uh, you'll soon go on a trip. Predictions that will inevitably come true sooner or later. The theories of Einstein, on the other hand, were very specific, and not what you might expect to see. For example, the theory of relativity predicted that the light from the stars uh, would be bent by the sun's gravity uh, as it passed close to the sun and make that star appear to be in the wrong place. This effect is not normally observed because when the sun is shining brightly in the sky, you cannot observe any stars unless the light from uh, the sun is blocked by something uh, like the moon, which is what happens during a total eclipse of the sun. Fortunately, there was a total eclipse of the sun in the summer of 1919. Einstein's theory made a very specific prediction that could be verified by any observer during an eclipse, provided he or she was in the right place at the right time and had the tools. On the other hand, Popper could find no place in the theories of Marx, Freud, and Adler where similar testable predictions could be made. For example, there was no way to provide a critical test of the existence of an Oedipal complex or the id. They could explain things after they happened, but they couldn't really predict them. In the summer of 1919, the British astronomer Arthur Eddington examined photographs he had taken of the total eclipse, and he saw exactly what Einstein had predicted. Stars near the edge of the eclipsed sun did not appear to be where they were supposed to be. If he and others had observed that the location of these stars did not appear to have moved, Einstein's theory of relativity would be toast, and by now both Einstein and his theory of relativity would be long forgotten. Popper concluded that the theory of relativity was superior to other theories because it provided a means by which it could be proved wrong. That is to say, the theory could be falsified, to use the word commonly in use these days. Other theories made no such predictions that could be similarly tested. Now this is not to say that the other theories of Marx, Adler, and Freud were wrong, just that they were not scientific because they offered no means by which they could be falsified. To put it crudely, a theory or fact cannot be considered scientific if it does not offer a means by which it can be tested, either by careful public observation or by experiment. I've chosen to use science to be our guide through the grand scheme of things rather than sacred writings or sage speculations, not because I believe that science has a monopoly on the truth, but because scientific facts and theories are more likely to be correct and less likely to waste our time than non-falsifiable theories and facts. Religions, on the other hand, make a virtue of believing in things for which there is no evidence. The Bible, for example, defines faith, and that is in Hebrews 11.1, 1, says that faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. On our journey, we will be creatures of little faith. But let's see where it takes us. All right, let's consider the age of the Earth. Here's an ex another example that might illustrate what I'm talking about. In the year 1650, James Usher, 
the Archbishop of Armagh, an Anglican primate of all Ireland, famously claimed that the universe was created on the evening preceding October 23rd, 2004 BCE. That's before the Common Era. This work, that means before Christ, this work was based on impressive scholarship involving the Old Testament and the study of many other ancient documents. From a scientific point of view, then, Usher proposed the hypothesis that the earth is now about 6,000 years old. How can we test this hypothesis using the scientific method? Well, one way would be to predict that if Usher was correct, we should not be able to find anything in the universe that was older than 6,000-odd years. So, we carbon date some rocks and find that they're about 4.5 million years old and conclude that the theory was wrong. God did not create the universe about 6,000 years ago. Now, remember we're talking about God here. Some people who believed theory for religious reasons were not convinced and came up with the following argument. That because God is all-powerful and not bound by the laws of physics, he or she really created the earth in 4004 BCE, but with a built-in history to trick us into believing it was much older. In 1857, around the time when Usher's dates were being subjected to tests by Charles Lyell, one of the fathers of modern geology, the Umphalus hypothesis was proposed by the naturalist Philip Henry Goss. Umphalos is the Latin word for navel. Proponents of this hypothesis say that the first human, Adam, had a navel. Now, this was not a vestige of an umbilical connection with a mother, as it is for everyone else, uh, created in the usual way. But Adam's navel was created by God so that it would look like it, he had had a mother. In other words, God created the world in 2004 BCE, but planted false evidence to make it look much older than that. Thus, according to the Omphalosians, I just made that word up actually, we can never test Usher's hypothesis using the scientific method. It's impossible to prove false. Every disproof would be written off as false evidence created by God. While the original Usher theory can be considered a scientific theory because it can be tested, and it was and it failed, the Omphalos theory cannot be tested, so it is not science. This is not to say that it's not true. It may well be that God did create the universe uh, about 6,000 years ago and tried to trick us into believing it's much older, but this is not a theory that the scientific method or scientists using it can handle. The idea that science, the scientific method depends on testable hypothesis may be making specific testable predictions draws our attention to the fact that science can only work in a realm where there are regularities or laws. It presumes that things that happen now are a result of the way they were previously. In other words, it only works where there is determinism, that is, the future is determined by the past in a regular way. We can paraphrase this by saying that scientists or science can only be applied in circumstances where the laws of nature apply. As we have seen with the theory of relativity, it is falsifiable because it makes predictions that can be tested. It follows, then, that science can only encompass things that follow laws. 
we make the presumption that everything in nature follows the laws of nature. Anything that does not follow these laws is called supernatural, because ghosts and spirits do not, by definition, follow natural laws. They are supernatural. One cannot make testable predictions about their existence, and therefore they cannot be studied by science. God is like that as well. God, as we usually define him or her, is not normally thought of as being subject to any laws and is not constrained in any way his, his or her wonders to perform. A God that is controlled by the laws of nature is not very godlike. Therefore, if God exists, it would be impossible to make any testable predictions about him or her. Clearly, science cannot study God. This is one reason that science is often thought of as being opposed to religion. Technically, science is not opposed to religion. It's just that science does not have the tools to investigate anything supernatural, and that includes gods, ghosts, and the afterlife. The real divide between science and religion is that many scientists do not believe that there is anything in the universe that is not controlled by natural laws. That is to say, there is nothing supernatural so all things can be studied scientifically. So let's examine this proposition. Is there anything we experience that is not controlled by natural laws? Anything that is not ultimately determined or predictable? A logical implication of this determinist view of the universe is the idea best expressed by the 18th century French mathematician Simon-Pierre de Laplace, who is remembered for his contributions to probability theory as well as for his demon. He proposed a little thought experiment that goes like this. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect at a certain moment would know all the forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items of which nature is composed. If this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. Now, Laplace talked about an intelligence. Later, it became known as Laplace's demon. It is unlikely that Laplace believed that there ever could be such a demon, but he was making a point. All nature works on a set of laws, so if you know the initial conditions and the laws, you should be able to predict everything. Laplace argued that the entire universe was determined by natural laws, and there was nothing that the demon could not know, but was he right? So let's make use of Laplace's demon and see if we can find anything in the universe that the demon could not predict. Perhaps the best place to start is with chance. Think about a coin toss. You will throw a coin in the air, and if it lands on a level surface, it will come to rest with one side up. We mortals are unable to predict which side will be up, but the demon will be able to. It would know all the physical parameters of the toss, the initial orientation of the coin, where and how it will land, every possible parameter that might influence the outcome. The demon would know exactly whether it would be heads or tails. 
In fact, the demon would be able to predict poker hands and slot machines and lottery winning numbers. Why, the demon would also be able to, pre to predict that you would meet your great aunt Florence in Trafalgar Square at 3 p.m. on January 23rd in the year 2024. Such calculations would be easy for the demon. But what about chaotic systems, like the weather? Could the demon predict that it would be raining and the air temperature would be 10.2 degrees centigrade in Trafalgar Square at 3 p.m. on January 23rd in the year 2024? That's a bit more challenging because the weather is a chaotic system. The answer to that question depends upon who you ask. A chaotic system is one like the weather or turbulence in a fluid or population density where there are a great many different initial conditions that are difficult to measure exactly. There are also some mathematical properties of the equations governing how these variables interact. They're curves rather than straight lines. Chaos theory started before Edward Lorenz, but it was Lorenz's attempts to predict weather that supplied the first real example of how the theory might apply to real-life situations. Edward, Edward Lorenz was a meteorologist at MIT in the early 1960s and was the first person to try to test the idea that computers could be used to predict the weather. He figured that weather was a deterministic system and that it should be possible to predict, that is, he thought he could be Laplace's demon. He did not think it would be simple, but he thought it would be possible using a computer. He started by studying convection currents, and he fed into his computer three equations that had been developed earlier to describe the formation of convection currents. He carried a set of initial conditions. He entered a set of initial conditions and let the program run, just like the demon. Lawrence found that the system did not settle down into a stable pattern of convection currents, but became increasingly unstable the longer that he ran it. In other words, he found that the system was chaotic. That's not to say that the system was random in the sense that it produced different results each time it was run. If Lorenz ran the same program with the same initial conditions, he always got the same chaos, that is, deterministic chaos. From our point of view, the most interesting thing that Lorenz found was an accidental observation that he called the butterfly effect. The story is now legendary. Computers in the 60s were very slow by modern standards, and a run would take many hours of calculation. One day, Lorenz had completed a run and found a result, but wanted to see a particular sequence again. But rather than start again from the beginning, he re-entered the values that the computer had generated at the halfway point. He then went for coffee. But when he came back, and checked the numbers, the second half of the first run was not replicated. Over time, it started to diverge from the first run. The longer he let it run, the greater the divergence. After ruling out computer malfunctions, he finally figured out what had happened. The original input he used was entered to six decimal places, but the printout the computer had supplied and what Lawrence had entered into the computer had been truncated to three decimal places. Lawrence had thought that this small difference would not make any meaningful consequence, but it did. Initial conditions differing as little as one in a thousand soon completely produced a different outcome. Lawrence was working with weather, and he called this the butterfly effect. 
He likened it to the possible effect of a single butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world. Over an extended period of time, this tiny change in the atmosphere might be enough to cause a tornado months later in a different part of the world. What Lorenz had demonstrated was that while chaotic symptoms are deterministic, very tiny changes in the initial conditions have drastic consequences later. The point of all this was that we cannot predict chaotic systems, not because they are random, but because we can never measure initial conditions with enough accuracy. So what are the consequences for our demon? Well, there should be none, providing that it knows the initial conditions. But perhaps that's not possible, because it's been shown that it is impossible to measure initial conditions accurately enough to make a chaotic system predictable. Even if you measured a variable to 200 decimal places, changes in the 201st digit would eventually create different results. In fact, knowing a variable to an infinite number of decimal places would still not be enough because infinity plus one would also create a divergence. This makes prediction in real-life chaotic systems impossible, as anyone who watches weather forecasts already knows. But what about the demon? I think the demon can handle chaos. To begin with, the problem with most computers is that they are digital. All input must have a number of decimal places. But the demon could have an analog computer, which works with analog quantities, not digits. In an analog system, infinitely small accurate measurements are possible. In addition, the more accurate the initial condition, the longer it takes for the system to diverge. If the demon knows the initial conditions to an infinite accuracy, it would take longer than the age of the universe for the divergence to occur, so it wouldn't matter. In any case, the important point is that a chaotic universe is still determined, which is a good thing for the demon and for science. But we can still cause the demon a bit of grief with quantum physics. Quantum physics. The disturbing thing about quantum physics from a deterministic point of view is that in theory many quantum events are truly random and in theory unpredictable. We have a vision of an electron spinning around the nucleus of an atom, but it is not really the way it is. The electron is really a wave or a field surrounding an atomic nucleus, a probability wave. The electron could be occupying any location in that wave, which we will not know until we have a look. As soon as we look, the wave will break down and the electron will appear to be with a known probability in a particular spot. But unless we look, the electron will be in all places of the wave at the same time. Now here I'm getting on really shaking ground. I'm not a physicist. All I know about it is that what I've been able to read in books such as Jim Al-Khalali's wonderful book, Quantum, A Guide to the Perplexed, a title to which I immediately gravitated. Quantum physics assures us that such events have an objective probability between 0 and 1. They are truly random and are not determined by past events. Just the thing that can ruin a demon's day. If indeed events that happen at the quantum level cannot be predicted, it does not relegate quantum physics to the realm of religion. Well, just because you cannot predict the location of a subatomic particle or the exact moment when a nucleus of a radioactive atom will decay, 
it does not mean that all things in the quantum world are not predictable. In 1964, Peter Higgs and others hypothesized that the widely accepted theory of particle physics called the Standard Model predicted the existence of a particle called the Higgs boson. At the time, there was no way to determine the existence of the Higgs boson to test the theory. But when the CERN, High Energy Particle Accelerator, that's the Large Hadron Collider, was built, this changed. In May 2013, it was shown that the Higgs boson did actually exist and that it had the properties predicted by Higgs. The standard model passed the test. In December 2013, Higgs and his collaborator Francois Englert were awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. It took almost 50 years, but the Nobel Committee was not going to give out that prize until the theory passed the false viability test. Now I see that we're past the 30-minute mark in our initial podcast. I had the distinct blessing of being a university professor for 40 years, and I know that 20 minutes is about the limit of attention span of most folks, including university professors. So I will endeavor not to exceed that limit. I will be back with episode 2 as soon as I am able, so hang in there and mind how you go. See you later.